0: I have not been up for a little while and uh, it's the first Sunday of June and thought it'd be a good opportunity to give us a little bit of a sense before we get back into the Sermon on the Mount, a little bit about where we are and where are we going this next several months this summer. Um, we had a great time at our prayer night. We had over a hundred people come. I got after you a little bit about that and uh, you responded greatly and we had a terrific time. We had a terrific time, and I think one of the highlights of the evening was just the number of people that our pastors were able to individually pray for as a part of that evening. It was really special. I also want to just mention that I'm so appreciative of how you've been sacrificially giving for our upcoming trips. We'll be taking a trip to East Asia and a trip to Nicaragua this summer. You've been giving sacrificially, and we really appreciate that. We're humbled by it. And uh, we're just about $3,000 short of our goal. And uh, so you can continue to give to that. But we're really, I'm just so pleased with where we are with that. And speaking of mission, um, next week we will finish the Sermon on the Mount. And beginning on June 18th, we're going to do a short three-part series of messages called a Mission For everyone. On June 18th, uh, we're going to have a really close friend of our church named Rich Mendola here. And Rich leads an organization called International Friendships. He is going to speak specifically on the topic of Christian hospitality and how we can impact our world through simple hospitality. You're really going to want to hear Rich's message. Then on June 25th, we're going to talk about a mission very close to us, which is church planting. And a lot of you have seen our, our uh, display out in our missions area, uh, describing a little bit of our church planting story. It's beginning new churches. And uh, so we'll spend a little time on that day. I'm hoping to interview some members of Awakened Church that we planted in 2010 on that day. And also on the 25th, we're going to have representatives and some members of our missionary partners around the world here, and they're going to set up their displays in the fellowship hall. So you can get lots of information about what's happening around the world, and uh, particularly with some of our close, intimate mission partners. That'll happen in between services and after after the second service. So that's the June 25th. And then July the 2nd, it's all going to climax into a... Uh, A service. We're going to do one service that morning. Okay, so please write that down. On July the 2nd, we're going to do just one service at 10 a.m. We're going to gather both services together and we're going to follow that up with a catered picnic, a catered lunch, a picnic afterwards. You're not going to want to miss that meal or the picnic. It'll immediately follow that service. And what we've done is we've been involved in a Partnership—it really is a partnership—with a some dear and really close friends in the city of Managua, Nicaragua, and so the three uh, couples, the three pastor couples that lead that church, we're going to fly up here on that day. So they're all going to be here on that day. They're going to be here for the weekend, and they're all we'll get a chance to hear from all of them on Sunday morning, the second. They're really precious friends. They are, uh, they've been doing an incredible work down there. We've had this wonderful 10 year partnership, and we all thought it would be worthwhile to celebrate that 10 year partnership with them. And uh, so we'll have a picnic, we'll have a great time. So be sure to be here. I know it's a holiday weekend, but if you have any chance, again, to not travel out of town, stay in town on that weekend. And um, uh, I think you're going to really benefit from hearing from our friends. Um, Angel Sobeta is the lead pastor there. He'll be speaking uh, along with Walter and Lourdes, um, Lissandro, again, their spouses. They're going to all be up here, going to get a chance to hear from them. Okay, so that's a little bit about where we've been and, um, and what's happening over this next, uh, this next month. All right, Let's turn our attention back to the Sermon on the Mount. We have this week and next week. According to what'sit.com, here is a definition of fake news. Fake news is, a, is an inaccurate, sometimes sensationalistic report that is created to gain attention, mislead, deceive, or damage a reputation. Unlike misinformation which is inaccurate because a reporter has confused facts, fake news is created with the intent to manipulate someone or something. Fake news can spread quickly because it provides disinformation that is aligned with the audience's point of view because such content is not likely to be questioned or discounted. Fake news has been around for a long time. The most famous example of fake news is the 1938 radio broadcast of a Martian invasion of Earth. This is 23-year-old Orson Welles, and he adapted the H.G. Wells classic, the sci-fi classic called War of the Worlds for Radio, but did not intend for it to be perceived as a real story. But listeners who came in late to the dramatization took the story for fact. Martians really had invaded the U.S. They really were annihilating humans with heat rays and poisonous gases. The misunderstanding led to mass hysteria, with listeners trying to flee the sites of the supposed close encounters, creating further chaos by jamming U.S. highways. There's just one problem with this story. The myth of the radio-induced mass hysteria wasn't true. It was itself fake news. Reports of panic were apocryphal. They were unconfirmed and received no follow-up investigation. Snopes.com, which labeled the story as mostly false, noted that only 2% of, the 5, of 5,000 households surveyed were listening when the radio was actually being played that night. Hardly enough to cause the pandemonium reported. Despite assertions to the contrary, almost nobody was fooled by Wells' rendering of that classic. Media historians went on to say that American newspapers, yes, American newspapers, inflated the story in an effort to discredit radio, the new media source, as being accurate. So what do you have there? You have fake news on top of fake news. It's crazy. It's incredulous. But fake news has been around for a long time. It's nothing new. As a matter of fact, Jesus cautioned us to be wary of fake news. In the definition, it said that fake news is likely to be questioned or discounted because it aligns with the audience's worldview. Friends, this is just as true in the spiritual realm. The fake news that Jesus warned us about is especially dangerous because it might feel right. This false news comes from two sources. It comes from outside of us, those who claim to speak for God. But it also comes, even more disturbingly, fake news can come from inside of us. We each have the prospect of self-delusion. So, with that in mind, let's stand and listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7. Beginning at verse 13. Jesus said this. but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. This is God's word. Go ahead and take a seat. There's been a little pivot here on the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus described how we can enter the kingdom of God and live in the kingdom of God, he now is urging a commitment. He says it with a collection of mixed metaphors that are going to drive our English teachers a little batty. But they are compelling nonetheless by describing two paths, two gates, two crowds, two outcomes... Jesus urges us to enter by the narrow gate. And then next, to stay on the course of that narrow path, he warns us to be wary of false prophets. And so the question for us is, once we enter by the narrow gate, how do we make sure we stay on the right path? That should be a question that we're all passionate to digest and to learn. Don't each of us want to be guided by the truth? In our relational world, in our vocational world, in where we live, we set up goals and timelines. We want to know where we are. We want to know where we are going. But is there Google Maps for the soul? We want to be guided by truth. Now, the, pen- the potential of self-delusion coming from within, we're going to delay that till next week when we wrap up this series. Today what we're going to tackle is how do we deal, how do we address when the deception, when the falseness comes through those who would claim to speak for God? How do we we address that? How do we deal with that? And what I'm going to cover is three different things. I'm going to cover first two critical assumptions that Jesus is making that we must go over for the foundation. And then secondly, we're going to ask, what are the tests that we must apply to the message? And then finally, what are the tests that we apply to the messenger? That seems to be the thrust of what Jesus is saying. So let's now pray and ask the Father to help us. Um, Father, in Jesus' name, through Jesus' who has opened up the door to talk with you and to come into your presence with a kind of humble confidence. Through him, Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to have understanding into what you mean here by your words. So that they can really get inside of us. So that, Father, we can stay on the right path and that we might be able, as individuals and as a body, to keep the main thing, the main thing. To continue, Father, to have a simple and pure devotion to Jesus. And so... We tell you, we can't do this in our own strength. We need your guidance and your leadership, your presence in our lives. Lord, touch each of us where we are this morning in a way that I never could have expected or imagined. And I pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen. 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 Okay. So let's look at first at these two assumptions. We have to clarify two things here about the message before we can even test the message. Perhaps there was something in the words of Jesus that made you feel uncomfortable, that you're not sure you can put your finger on. Let me see if I can help a little bit. First, Jesus assumes, he assumes, that there is truth about him that we can know with certainty, with reasonable certainty. We can discern enough spiritual truth to say one thing is true and another thing is false. There exists, according to Jesus, spiritual truth that is knowable, that is more than simply one person's religious opinion. Second, Jesus assumes a decision must be made. A commitment must be made. Now this is related to the first point because truth by definition is narrow. If a pilot wants to land a plane safely in normal conditions, he does not have a thousand different options available to him. He must trust his gauges and follow a procedure. Truth is, is narrow. That is, of course, if he wants to land safely. A heart surgeon cannot rely on her instincts, her feelings, to do open heart surgery. There are not a thousand pathways available for her to open up clogged arteries. She might be creative, but there remains an established and narrow protocol that she must follow if the patient is going to live. And again, staying at a Holiday Inn does not qualify you to do heart surgery. Because truth points us in a clear direction, Jesus calls for a decision. His pictures assume that you are at a fork in the road. Will you take the road less traveled? Or the one all your friends are on? And implied in this is that you cannot stay in neutral forever. To not choose the narrow path is to stay on the broad path. To not choose the narrow gate is to choose the wide, wide gate. To follow the crowds is to not choose the way of the few. Now, we don't like this. We don't like to commit. We don't like to be pinned down. We want to keep our options open. And we're led to believe That because we cannot be certain, this is reinforced in a thousand different ways in our culture, we are led to believe that because we cannot be certain about spiritual truth, therefore we can twist truth around what we desire it to be, like a gumby doll. But here in Jesus, he speaks as one who is sharing an absolute truth, and then he asks for a decision. So we have this uncomfortable reality that here is a truth that we can't twist for self-gain and here's a person that insists he is an unshakable reality that we can't move but we can only humbly follow. We have had a lot of babies around here recently in case you in case you haven't seen or noticed Seems like every week it's a great thing, but here's one thing for sure. One thing for sure, not that I know it personally, but I have seen it four times. When a mom begins that wonderful but painful process of birth, there is no turning back. She cannot change her mind. She is committed. In the same way, we must decide what we are going to do with Jesus. Remaining neutral, he does not simply leave that as an option. So, what is the nature of the message? There is a claim for truth that demands a response. You see, without that foundation, it would not make any sense to discuss false teaching. There really wouldn't be a category for us of false teaching. If it were merely a matter of one opinion versus the other, then all we would have would be opinions, and nobody could say your opinion is greater than mine. And for many people, that's what they believe about the nature of spiritual truth. Facts and mathematics, or facts and logic, or facts and science, that's one thing. But facts and religious truth is a whole other matter. It's merely a matter of opinion. If that's the case, then Jesus' words would be meaningless to us. There would be no such thing as a false teaching or false prophet that we could know. So turn to 2 Peter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. It's page 1018 in your Bible. Jesus does assert to be the truth, does assert there are false prophets. As you're turning there, I, I, I found an article that I liked by a pastor named Colin Smith... He made this really astute point. I'm sorry, did I say 1 Peter? Ah, good, I was right. (laughs) 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 1, we really have the characteristics of a genuine believer. And in 2 Peter 2, we have the characteristics of a counterfeit believer. If we put them side by side... We can see the difference between genuine believers and counterfeit believers. Now, he has seven different traits. We can't cover all of those, but let me cover just a few. Now, remember here, what we're trying to do is we're testing the message. How do we test the message? So look at 2 Peter 2, verses 1. He says, but false prophets are also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The context here was talking about true and false prophets in the Old Testament. And so Peter says, just as in the Old Testament, now also in the New Testament, there are false prophets who tried to turn the people's hearts from God into something very superficial. So in the same way, Peter says, there will be false teachers among you. Now notice, he is not talking about some obvious New Age guru or evident non-Christian type person. He is talking about people who are in the church, who claim to be followers of Christ. These are the most dangerous, because they hang a shingle out that says, we are a church, we love Jesus. But, but, their redefinition of Christianity, their redefinition of the historic creeds upon which our faith is built on. So, totally re- redefine the Christian faith that it is anything but Christian. So, how would you recognize counterfeit Christianity? As you listen to Christian podcasts or you are traveling through Barnes and Noble, are you able to really judge and discern what's counterfeit? Here's some things that Smith lists as far as seven traits of false teachers. Number one, look at 2 Peter 1.16. And this answers the question, where does the message come from? What is the source of the message? Look at what Peter said. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then look at 2 Peter 2.3. Here's the, here's the contrast. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. These are the false teachers. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. One other version of the uh, chapter 2, verse 3 says, Fabricated stories. The true teacher relies on the Bible as their source, not made-up stories. Here specifically, Peter says, I am going back to my eyewitness testimony. In contrast, the false teacher relies on their own opinions, ingenuity, charisma, or the power to move people emotionally. Remember, fake news, as you know, intentionally divorces people from facts and appeals to emotions. Jesus used a troubling picture on what to call these people, calling them ravenous wolves. In other words, they eat sheep. They are motivated by some kind of self-gain. And friends, right, in our lifetime, right, in our lifetime, we have seen way too many examples of this, haven't we? In our culture, here in the United States, my goodness, we've seen so many examples, sadly, of of wolves in sheep clothing, gaining from vulnerable people. But not only the source of their message, also the substance is a distinguishing factor. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus. Him is Jesus who called us to His own glory and excellence. Everything we need is in Christ. Christ is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the message. Everything pertaining to godliness, we discover through being connected to Jesus. Look at the contrast. Again, Again, looking at chapter 2, verse 1. Same verse. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive Heresies. You see, for the true teacher, the genuine believer, Jesus Christ is central. He is and he remains the hero of the story. But the movement away from Christ tends to be at first very subtle. Notice the word secretly. Secretly. It is rare for someone using the platform of the church to openly deny Jesus. But when they do deny Jesus, sounds like that the second commercial, but when they do, when you do, when they do, they head in two opposite directions. When we subtly move away from Christ. On one hand, false teachers diminish the divinity of Christ. Robbing Him of His supernatural claims and power, Jesus is reduced from a Savior to be worshipped to a good teacher a champion of the oppressed, a martyr for a cause. That's one subtle error. But the other subtle error is that we diminish his humanity, his humanness. These teachers present a God so holy, so removed from us, and paint us as being so stained that God could barely enter this cesspool called planet Earth. To them, it's inconceivable what God so removed could love our polluted world and our polluted bodies. Though these errors diminish His divinity, diminish His humanity, though they appear to head in opposite directions, they are actually more like a circle. They meet at the same point of reducing Jesus from all He is, particularly making His death something other than what it really was. What do I mean by that? This is crucial because once we lose who Christ is, the next step is we lose the purpose of his death. The postmodern, the progressive teacher, tames Jesus. This is the one that diminishes his divinity. He makes him more manageable. He makes him more likable to our cultural sensibilities. He recruits him for their favorite political cause. He puts him on an equal level with the world's other great religions. And this Jesus we have no need of as a Savior. We have no need for him to redeem him because we can morally perfect our society by being better people, by education, by different political processes, by different economic processes. We can perfect ourselves, and our society. We don't need the redemption of Jesus. There is no such thing as sin or separation from God. Now these so-called progressive teachers share a kinship with false prophets in the Old Testament. We alluded to them earlier. Turn to Jeremiah 23 for one example of this. Jeremiah 23 It's page 651 in your Bibles. This is around late 600s B.C. 700s B.C. There is a judgment, a severe judgment coming upon Israel. After hundreds of years of rejection and of warning, finally God's going to judge his people. But the false prophets told the people, hey, 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 there's no judgment. God could never do that. Peace, peace. I'm okay, you're okay. We're not all really that bad. God could never seem to it to judge us. He's a God of love. How could he judge? You're not that bad. Modern day teachers, under the pretense of Christianity, say virtually the exact Same things. You're not that bad. God will never judge. Hell's not real. Look at what the Lord says. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is verse 17. Do not listen to the words of these prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. And in verse 21, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. They ran with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. This is one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, there's the, again, the the ones that diminish the humanity of Jesus, his humanness. The uber holy teacher who can't ever picture God relating to us as father or Jesus relating to us as brother. God is so holy, he's too distant to relate to our temptations, to our suffering, to our heartaches. Yes, we are sinful, but the only way we can get to God, according to these teachers, is by proving our goodness, by establishing our worthiness through merit. And we do, such, we do that through climbing a moral ladder in which we are always several rungs ahead of the slobs beneath us. You see, both of these are errors. Both of these slowly Achieving our righteousness Our perfection It's always about achieving perfection That's really what we're always trying to do Being after perfection Through climbing a moral ladder Through a a works righteousness Not faith in Jesus Or progressing a society And progressing individuals Through education Better politics Better economics Achieving perfection in that way In both cases, you no longer need Jesus Christ. We slowly edge away like the frog in the kettle from the source and the substance of Jesus' words. You eventually end up, amazingly, in the same place. You've reduced Jesus from being God and from being Savior to something far less than He actually is, than He truly is. And so test the message. Test the message. Is the person of Jesus fully God and fully man? Is the work of Jesus at the cross central to our need for individual and corporate redemption? If you're right on those things, friends, you'll stay on that narrow path. If you're right on that message, if you're right on that message, you'll stay on that path. Now the second thing is, and I'm just running a little bit out of, out of time here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over a little bit. But you notice the second thing here is that we must not only test the message, but what else must we test? It's pretty implicit in the text, isn't it? You gotta test the messenger, right? You gotta test the messenger. How will we know? How will we know them? By the fruits. By the life, by the character of the messenger. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? It's not only in what they do, isn't it? It's interesting. It isn't only, we don't only test character by what the spiritual leader does. Because Jesus goes on to say, hey, there's lots of great people. And they do all of these fantastic works in my name. And if you look at them and look at their ministries and look at them as individuals, you think, wow, man, if anybody's with God, that person is it. But you see how it's completely possible to do all of these great things in God's name and have no personal, vital familiarity with Jesus. That's why Jesus used those words. They are relational words. I don't think I recognize you. (laughs) I've not seen you before. And this person, to their surprise, we'll get into this more next week, they they figured they figured it was all good between them and God. It was quite a shock, quite a surprise on the day of judgment. Jesus said, I don't remember ever interacting with you at any kind of personal level or personal way. Yeah, but I did all these great things. This really speaks to a whole number of things. But it's so it's vital that we... Test the messenger. If you look at some of the verses in 2 Peter 2, you can write these down. But Peter describes the character, the character, again, the character, not just the words, but the character of these false teachers. Look at verse 10, look at verse 14 in the second chapter. Peter describes what they are like. The life of the teacher is so, so very important. So we've got to test the message, and we've got to test as well the messenger. We've got to avoid fake news. One person said it this way, sound doctrine, right truth, and holy living are the marks of true prophets. Now, let me just share a couple things here in conclusion. Here's one little caution I want to share. We're going to to take communion here in a moment. But I want to share one little caution about this. Before I close up, hopefully we've already given you some practical things to do. This warning of Jesus, this warning of Jesus, should not make us suspicious of everybody. Okay? I want to make sure you hear that. This warning should not make us suspicious of everybody. There are people on Facebook or on the internet who have used these social platforms for becoming doctrinal police of ministries, And of individuals that they know only from a distance. They don't know their hearts. And they often find themselves reacting to one incident. Or to one slice of a message. Or to one piece of a book. They don't have all the facts. But they react to one slice of them. Many of these well-intentioned folks live to ferret out wrong personal, personal doctrine as a personal hobby, wrong doctrine as a personal hobby. And really, it becomes wearisome. And it hurts the cause of Christ. It hurts the overall cause of Jesus. I believe it is God's heart in these matters. When controversy and conflict comes up, I believe it's in God's heart for local people in local communities in their local context to get together and sit around the table, look each other eye to eye, see each other face to face, and listen. <laughs> There's a lot of like not listening going on in the Christian community. There's a lot of being quick to judge and quick to be doctrinal police. Instead of sitting across the table looking at someone in the eye and listening and being just. You see, to be just is to hear the whole story. And then to make some kind of a judgment after you've heard the whole story. Refusing to react quickly and seeking peace. Now on the same hand, God's truth does matter, right? On the same hand, God's truth does matter. And it is up to local Christian leaders and it's up to congregations to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. So you bear some responsibility in this as well, as as I do. To make sure we remain true to the historic Christian faith that has been handed down to us. It has been handed down to us. We are not inventing something new. While our faith might be freshly applied to questions and ethical challenges that face us today, we do not have the authority or the right to change its essential meaning it is a precious stewardship that has been handed down to us so let me lead us now to the communion table so we think about now turning our hearts and taking communion together as a body when we talk about when we talk about testing the fruit testing the message but particularly about testing the fruit and the personal character of our leaders, you might wonder, how does that impact me? (laughs) How does it impact me, since I am the one, and a few others here, are claiming to speak for God? Well, it affects me, as you might think it affects me. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Does it lead to self-examination? Absolutely. What is the fruit of my life? What really is the fruit of my life when nobody's looking? What is my character? The leader, while we as a congregation all have a responsibility to make sure we stay true to historic Christian faith, we as leaders do bear more responsibility. It's why James says not many of you should become teachers. So I've got to examine the fruit of my own life. If I'm going to be up here saying I speak for God. And I can tell you, I've told some of my closest friends this. There was a period in my life, earlier in my ministry, where my messages were not as grounded in the Scripture as they should have been. Too much personal opinion. Too much personal opinion. I want to tell you, it's one of my deepest regrets. It's one of my deepest regrets as a pastor. Not being as grounded in the Scripture. Too much about some opinions. Instead of the historic Christian faith that we're simply called on to apply to a fresh new generation. But how about you, too? How about you? I mean, you gotta do the same thing. You gotta examine the fruit of your own life. It's obvious from Jesus' words of our potential to delude ourselves and to be terribly surprised on the day of judgment. To be terribly surprised, we have the potential to delude ourselves. How do we know? How do you know if you are on that narrow path? Well, I think if we go way back to the beginning of our series, when we started the Beatitudes, you remember we talked about the spiritual condition necessary to enter in and to live in the kingdom. Beatitudes. The Beatitudes include an awareness of your spiritual bankruptcy. Grief over your sin and its impact on God and others. Responding with mercy to the faults of others. Desiring the right things. Growing in purity. Bringing people together rather than dividing them. Not demanding your rights, but surrendering them for the sake of others. These are the things that should be evident in your spiritual leaders. And if Christ is in you, they should be growing in your life. I'm not saying you're perfect in them, but if Christ is in you, these qualities should be manifesting and growing in your life. We'll see this next week. It's quite clear. Even though we are saved by grace, even though we are saved by grace, the scriptures are quite clear. We will be judged by our works. We will be judged by our works. And the question will be is, will our works manifest that faith is real in us? Fully man and fully God. Jesus was all of these things. Perfect purity, perfect mercy, perfect gentleness, perfect righteousness, perfect freedom, perfect love. And with this as his offering, he gave his life on the cross to die for our utter imperfections. The perfect one died for us, the imperfect ones. He exchanged his life for ours. On the moral ladder that we talked about over here, there is no degree of separation from us and those we deem lost. (laughs) There's a great separation between us and God. We're all lost. So what does Jesus ask you to do today? He asks you to come and to die to yourself and to make him the driving force of your life so his perfect life could begin to live in and through you. Let me call the band up if I could. To keep our devotion to Jesus central, once a month we celebrate his death and resurrection through two symbols. His bread, the body, and the juice, his blood. In taking it, we symbolize taking Jesus into our lives and living through him. Jesus called himself the bread of life. In just a moment, the ushers are going to release you row by row to the table's The two tables, the Lord's tables up here. Take a piece of bread. Take a cup of juice. And after you've made sure that your heart is right with God, after you've made sure that you've confessed, whatever could be bringing separation between you and Him, then take the bread and take the juice at your seats. This ceremony is for any believer in Jesus, regardless of your background. And if you're not yet a Christian, Take time this morning to reflect on the message of Jesus, his claim to truth. And I urge you to consider all of his life and his claims. And we would continue to love to answer any of your questions. Let me simply read a few verses from John chapter 10. You can begin, guys to guys and gals, to release people. John chapter 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal kill and destroy I came that you might have life and have it abundantly I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep I am the good shepherd I know my own and my own know me just as the fathers know me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep amen